Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Hey, we're going to study the book of Jonah again today. Last week, I kicked off a series on this great um, epic story from the Bible. It's really, it's one of the best literary works from ancient times. Um, You'll find that whether you're a Christian or whether you would not consider yourself a Christian, that this piece of writing is actually quite brilliant. Um, And I hope as I unpack it a little bit today, that becomes evident and the story grabs a little bit um, at your core. Um, Today, we get to, of course, look at the scene where Jonah gets eaten. Jonah, this prophet who has run from God, gets eaten and swallowed by, that looks like a whale. One of the, the translations says a great fish. Like we don't, like it's amazing how much ink has been like spilled and written about what kind of fish and like how exactly it happened. All I can tell you was it was bigger than a muskie. It was a lot bigger than a muskie. And Jonah finds himself inside the belly of the fish. And today we're going to look at his prayer from that place. And here, my hope this morning is that you learn one point. I think the passage has one point. And so I'm going to try and preach a sermon with only one point. It's hard for me to do. Um, But in order for us to get there, I don't want to spoil it. Um, Let me recap chapter one a little bit and then bring us to the point where Jonah learns something, even sort of in like small, small fashion. And then I'd like to spend the close of the sermon sort of spinning it a few different ways, hoping that we could sort of see it and it would come to life. So Jonah chapter 1 begins with God saying to a man named Jonah, who is a prophet, he served in the temple at Jerusalem, go to Nineveh and tell them that judgment is coming for them. So God tells Jonah to leave his town in Jerusalem and go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh. No, Jonah, instead of going towards Nineveh, he, I think we've got a map here, runs down to Joppa, And then goes on a ship to try and flee to Tarshish, away from Nineveh, nearly 2,500 miles. The guy does not want the assignment. He's like, I will pass. I'm going the other way. And even though Jonah runs away from God, which was the whole theme from last week, that Jonah ran from God, just like many of us have at times and in ways run from God, God pursues him. And in fact, Jonah, no matter how hard he tries, cannot escape the presence of the Lord. He maybe knows this from the outset, but he goes anyway, defiant to the core, running in the opposite direction. Jonah knows that amidst the storm, as this storm brews upon the sea and threatens to break up the ship and really sort of take all of the lives of the sailors, Jonah knows that God wants him. He is what God wants. And so he says to the sailors, throw me over. They, of course, say, no, are you crazy, right? So they row even harder, and to no avail, they can't find their way to shore. The storm is increasing, and so they toss Jonah 
overboard, and down, down, down he sinks to the bottom of the sea. Little did Jonah know that God had appointed a muskie to swallow him. So we have here in chapter 2 a prayer, a song, a poem of Jonah that's spoken from the belly of a great fish. And it breaks down roughly into two parts, verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 10. Let's, let's read it together. I kind of want to read it all the way through once so you can feel some of the flow, the effect of it, and then I'll show you a little bit of how the structure breaks down after that. This is, let's, let's go Jonah, I think verse 17 maybe start there. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. He's in the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, Sheol is the, the underworld. It's the land of the dead. So he's saying, I'm down, down in the depths, almost dead. And from there I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep. Wait, I thought the sailors did that. Nope. Jonah says, God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The seas, of course, we learned last week is that sort of figurative chaos and darkness in this setting. So the power of the seas, he has been cast into the very sort of control center of chaos underwaters. The flood, which, of course, the flood, anybody remember Noah? Not such a good thing, right? I mean, like, pairs of animals is kind of cute, but judgment was not so cute, right? Flood over all of the earth, judgment, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep, that word deep, surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head. You get that idea of suffocation and drowning. At the roots of the mountains, how low is he? I went down. There's our word. Jonah had gone down, 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 down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. And then he has this sort of praise, reflection, thanksgiving in verses 7 through 10. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will repay Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah, running from God, finds himself captive in the belly of a whale. And there, even amidst the, the stomach and the guts, and all that, like he thinks he's rescued. He has been rescued. And now we can't sort of rake Jonah over the coals too much because you and I have run from God a time or two. And he's actually praying a song of praise and thanksgiving 
while in a fish. I don't know. That, I don't know the last time I've done that, right? Like down there in a fish, praising God and thanking him for a rescue that's incomplete at best, right? He's, he's there, underwater, somehow alive. But in Jonah's running from God, he's not escaped the presence of God, but has gone down as far as he can go. And there, at his lowest low, he cries to the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, and he is, friends, as good as dead. As good as dead. Death, Sheol, the deep have swallowed him as well. Okay, let me show you a little bit more of what's going on here. Now, you get the effect. He's gone down, and he's been rescued, sort of, but let me show you sort of the heart of the passage. If you look carefully at verse 2, he says, I called out to the Lord, and out of my distress, he, he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, the language in there sounds really similar to if you jump down to verse 6, right? I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, the pit, so a synonym for Sheol, and then he says, O Lord, my God. So we have this sort of parallel going on with the language about the Lord, the depths of Sheol and the pit. But then wait a second. Okay, jump back up to verse 3. Remember, folks, if you have a Bible, you got to bring it. We're going to study. All right? If you don't have a Bible, I would love to buy you one. All right? Come talk with me afterwards. Um, verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. You've got language about the deep surrounding him, over the top of him, okay? And then jump again to verse five. See the similar language? The waters closed over to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds wrapping about my head at the root of the mountains. Do you see it? There's another parallel, right? Verse two and verse six, verse three and verse five, sort of stacking their way towards the center of verse four, which is the literary tool known as a chiasm, pretty common in the scriptures. When the writers would write in their day, they would put the main point at the center. We, on the other hand, would make a logical case building our way towards the end. But the, the writers here is making his main point at the center, verse 4, which says, Then I said, that's different. So he switches the tone. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Do you see the pairing there as well? Sight, look. Jonah is on the verge of entering Sheol. He is about gone, fading from consciousness, and he remembers the Lord. It's too late for him. He knows this word right here, if you look at it, I am driven away, is the word for divorce in the Old Testament. I am completely separated and cut off. There is no returning for me. He cannot return, but he may be reborn. All he does is look. He looks, and with an ugly faith, a simple, feeble trust, he looks to the Lord. His gaze shifts, and he believes. 
He's been banished from the land of living. He's been driven away, right? God has given him over to the desires of his heart. Hey, you want to go, Jonah? Go. Go ahead. Go down. Go down. See how it works for you. Right? Do you think the deep will have the last word, Jonah? Right? Do you think that death gets the final say, Jonah? Right? Do, do you not know that I can see into Sheol? Do you not know that my love reaches to the deep? I mean, come on, church. Let's do this here. Did, Jonah didn't know. He didn't know that God's love reaches to the lowest valley as well as to the highest heights. He did not know that God's love could go down and bring a man from the dead. He did not know God's mercy is more. God's mercy is more. That's the point of this passage. More than you could fathom. Farther than you could fall deeper than you could go, greater than you could believe. His mercy is more. No matter how cut off you feel, no matter how low you've gone, no matter how distant you've been, God's mercy is more, and he has not let you escape his presence, though you have run the other way. Jonah didn't know God's mercy is more. And for our application today, all I want to do is look at that, that God's mercy is more. And I'm hoping that we can sort of take a few different vantage points on it to see it. I, don't, I mean, I don't want to put anybody in the belly of the whale, all right? Like, the, nobody needs to taste fish guts. But I want us to get close enough to Jonah that we can feel a bit of the salt water on our face as we see what he's gone through and hopefully see what God is seeing us through as well. Sound good? All right, application number one, birth. Somebody say birth. Birth. God's mercy is more because new life is possible. New life is possible. Like, Jonah's reached the point of no return. He knows he can't go back. He's banished. And if you look at the Old Testament carefully, this is exactly the same language of someone who has broken the covenant of God and the way that God would send them into exile, right? So here you have Jonah going, I'm exiled, I'm gone, but maybe if I look to the holy temple, perhaps God will hear my cry and save me. Well, this passage helps you see that, like, Jonah is in the depths. He has no turning around, but this isn't the end for him. Okay, look at this. This is kind of fun. The great fish swallows up Jonah. This is verse 17 and the, of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great muskie to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three, day, three nights. The Hebrew word for fish there is dog. Dog. Our great muskie devours Jonah. The fish is a masculine fish. Dog is a masculine word. He consumes, eats, destroys. It's the language of judgment in the Old Testament. Gulps him down. And all I got to say is that men are pretty good at violence. 
I mean, like, don't, don't, listen, don't paint me that way when it comes to men and women. But all I'm saying is, if you stack up the scorecard of history, life has come from a woman about 100% of the time. I mean, last time I checked, I've got a mom, and so do you and just about everybody else. Life seems to come from women. Men, on the other hand, are pretty good at doing the opposite. Sad to say. But look it. If you read into chapter 2, verse 1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the, ve- the belly of the Daga, the female fish. Why does, why does he switch genders? Like, wh- what kind of theological or literary point is Jonah trying to make? Why does he go from dog to Daga? It's much smoother. Um, listen, what's going on? Well, listen, my straight-A Hebrew students, the point that Jonah is trying to make is that, or that, that Jonah in writing this and God in sort of authoring this is trying to make is that Jonah is swallowed by the dog, but he goes into the womb of the daga. Jonah finds himself not in the stomach, but in the womb. And here's why. Because God has made it clear that how Jonah is, he cannot return. There is no going back for Jonah. He cannot stay the same, but he may become new. And if he becomes new in the womb of the fish, then perhaps he could then go on forward in life. If a new birth was to happen, if a kind of complete life change was to occur, then somehow Jonah could have a future. But as he's set to go down, 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 his way only leads to destruction and death. But if there's a fundamental change, then he could return to the land of the living even be one who speaks words of life. Now listen, in my children's Bible, one of their little Bibles, there is um, a, a picture of the Pharisees. There's a story where Jesus goes, of course, to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is the only name that my children associate with Pharisees. So every time they see anything remotely looking like a religious person in the Bible, they're like, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, he's right there. Like, just there's only one. Um, he's, He's a good one to remember. But like, if you remember the story of Nicodemus, right? Jesus sort of hears a knock at the door late at night, and Nicodemus kind of creeps towards him and goes, listen, I want to talk to you, teacher. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He hadn't read Jonah. At least not very carefully. The teacher of Israel did not know that a kind of fundamental change, a new life in the soul needed to happen in order for you to enter the kingdom. And some of you don't know that yet today either. That like you've sort of been tracking your way along with Christianity or with church for a while. But what you need is a complete new life. You need to get to the point of death and then be given life by God. 
Like that is the way forward into the kingdom of God, not a sort of working your way there, but reaching the point of no return. And then God breathing life in the most unlikely of ways. It's what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance leads to life. And now I know that repentance is sort of like a, an old word and even sort of a negative word for a lot of you. But it's sad that it is that way. Jonah, in the heart of the sea, shows us the heart of repentance, which is really a shift of gaze. It is that moment when you begin looking no longer at what you've done or where you've headed, and you begin to look to the Lord. That is repentance, turning away your gaze onto the Lord and then following where he leads. I shall again look, as Jonah says, is the voice of repentance. Now listen, when you repent, which is to be an ongoing reality that actually brings about joy. I mean, Jonah's singing a song of praise here. It's not drudgery, but when we turn to the Lord, there is renewal of joy and of life. But when we do so, you may not know the entire journey. The first step is all that's required. Jonah has no clue the road ahead of him, but he has said, yes, Lord, I will look to you again and go along the journey. All right, birth. Application number two, life. Somebody say life. Life. Because God's mercy is more, spiritual life is possible. And spiritual life is full of tension. I mean, I don't know all of your stories. I know a lot of them. But I, I do know mine, and I'm persuaded because of Jonah to say that spiritual life necessitates a kind of tension in this world. Let me show it to you in this passage. Look at verses 7 through 10. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I don't know about you, but when I read that in the larger context of Jonah... I start to feel a little weird. Like, I feel some kind of way about it. I'm like, listen, listen, bro, you have not even acknowledged you're running from God yet. And you're saying, like, when I, what I have vowed, I will repay. How am I supposed to believe you? There is no confession in this song. There is no acknowledgement of his guilt. There is no, yes, I ran to Joppa, fled to Tarshish, nothing. Jonah doesn't even go there. If you, if you read some of the commentators on this passage, one of the commentators says this phrase drops sort of like a cannonball into the middle of the book of Jonah, seeming weirdly at, odd, at odds with the flow of the story. I think the self-centeredness of Jonah here is kind of astonishing. If you look at his prayer, the number of times he says, my, the number of times he says, I have this, it's a lot. 
His prayer is about him. His focus is about him. The sailors have turned to worship the Lord, but Jonah, in some ways, is still holding back some things. Right? He says, those who cling to the idols forsake their hope of grace. He's got this sort of pious stance here that feels almost like he doesn't fit within his own character. Self-centered in his song of praise. Now, here's where the kicker comes. If you read it, and it seems like this sort of triumphal language, and then look at the response, I think you get a window into what's actually going on in Jonah. Like, as he's reading this saying, like, I remember the Lord from the low place, and I will vow, and I will repay. It's like God himself is hearing this, and so is the muskie. And like, when he finally gets to the point where he's like, salvation comes to the Lord, the muskie's like, sick to his stomach, this fish vomits him out. It's like, I can't take this anymore. The vanity. He spews him out onto the beach. And our prophet is free. Or is he? I mean, when he's writing this, he's in no way free. He is captive in the belly, the womb of a fish. He thinks he's free. I mean, isn't that what the promise of running from God always is? Look on your life. When you seek to leave the Lord's ways or when you want to run on your own, isn't it always for freedom's sake? Isn't it always because the ways of the Lord feel constricting, but my own way feels like liberation? But how far is that from the truth? Jonah is not free. He's stuck in the belly of a whale, right? And even more, he's captive by, by this inaccurate and inflated view of himself. So self-centered. Now listen, he's not maybe as narcissistic as some of the portrayals you might see on TV. I don't know what shows you watch and stuff. And most of us here are not that either. But the kind of self-centeredness in Jonah creeps into us in really subtle ways. I don't know if you've thought about this, but like, have you noticed those times when all of a sudden you're aware of how you've made yourself the center of something? You're in that setting at work or in a social setting, and then all of a sudden you're like, yep, I'm in the middle, and I like it there. Self-focus. Maybe you've had that moment where you're like, man, I just can't lose control of this situation, of that project, of this relationship. And if anybody else gets their hands upon that, surely it's going to get messed up and fall through. All of a sudden... You don't say that out loud, but you yourself at the core controlling everything. What about when you all of a sudden realize that, oh, yeah, that person was really hurting or that was going on that was significant, but I really had only eyes to see how it concerned me. Oh, I didn't see how that would come across to them have this way of 
putting ourselves at the center, keeping control by our own hands, making ourselves the chief concern, the cost-benefit analysis always comes down to us. Man, I start running through the relationships that I have in life, and I'm like, man, I see the self-centeredness of Jonah and others. Oh, oh wait, oh, wait, That's, that means it's in me, too. That means it's in me, too. I don't know about you. The gift of the tension here in this story and the tension of the Christian life is that you discover your idols. You discover the things that you have true allegiance to, the things that you really long and hope for. They promise security, but they only end up as a snare. That's actually sort of the root word for this, as a snare. But spiritual life involves a continual turning again from our idols to looking to the Lord. They may give you comfort for a season, but they hold you captive. You are not free. Freedom does not come by self. Freedom comes by salvation, which comes from the Lord. And spiritual life is that continual acknowledgement of there's things off in me, yet I still have a true desire within me for the Lord. The hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The great theologian said, my heart is like a factory of idols. I keep making them and keep making them. They keep shifting my gaze away from the Lord. Or as my mentor, Bill Wellens, once said, the Christian life starts with conversion, looking first to the Lord But it involves many conversions, looking again and again to the Lord. Not just rebirth, but renewal. God's mercy is more. It's more for our lives full of tension, where we are not the people we long to be yet. Where we are not as free as we long to be yet. We're not as holy as we long to be yet. Not as humble as we long to be yet where the the entanglement of self-centeredness still has us. God's mercy is more. All right, last one. Maturity. Somebody say maturity. Let's hit this and then then we'll go home. Maturity requires more mercy, not less. I know you bought the lie that you'll sort of grow up in the faith and you won't need God's mercy anymore. You'll like clean yourself up and you'll like, I got this thing on lock now. Like I could do Christianity. No, no, you can't. Right? More mercy is required for maturity than for immaturity. Like, I don't know about you, but I've been walking with Jesus for a little bit of a while now. And I can tell you that, like, temptation has not stopped. Right? It, like, that prayer of Jesus, like, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Was as good on the first day as it is today. Right? God's mercy is more because mercy leads to maturity. And mercy is required for maturity. I hope you see in Jonah this shining truth because Jonah puts his faith in the God of heaven, right? The one who rules over the sea and the dry land. And this Lord begins to lead Jonah by his steadfast love and mercy 
towards maturity. I mean, if anything, the prayer, the vomiting, and then the next few chapters prove God has a plan for Jonah. And he's got a plan for you and a plan for me. One, one commentator said, Jonah is grateful without repenting for his running because his basic beliefs have not yet changed. So he's cried out to the Lord, and the Lord rescues you from that place. Whenever you cry out to him, he rescues and delivers when you're in distress. But he's not, he's not satisfied with that. He doesn't want to just rescue you. He does not just provide relief. Listen, the Lord wants to work redemption. And the work of redemption means that you leave behind immature ways and you continue to grow up into maturity, into the very image and likeness of Christ. Jonah doesn't even want the Ninevites to experience the great grace he's already seen yet. But one day he will. I think one day he did. That's why he wrote this book. Maturity requires... Mercy, because the road to maturity often includes both protest and praise. Protest and praise. Meaning, it is not that you become mature and you have no protest towards God, that you have no issues you raise to him, that you have no angst in your soul about what's going on in your life. It does not mean that you become mature and all of a sudden your, your feelings and emotions are just all settled and calm. It is that your relationship with the Lord becomes mature and able to handle those things such that you praise the Lord, but you also have the confidence to protest the Lord at times, knowing that he's going to work out the middle of that. He's going to help you see where he's leading you, and he's going to shape your heart in such a way that your basic core beliefs even grow and mature. God's mercy is more, friends, because the wise, the patient, the redeeming God of Jonah, the God of us, is not through with him. The, the president of our network had a phrase he would say often. Maybe he doesn't say it anymore. I don't know. But he used to always say, listen, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. And what he meant is, like, it's okay to not be okay. Like, if any place on earth, the church should be a place where you don't have to be okay. But of any place on earth, the church should be a place where you grow to be okay in Jesus. That's what the Lord wants for us. <laughs> That's what the Lord wants for us. He doesn't want to leave us saliva-soaked with fish guts on the beach he wants us to mature, to, to be able to get up and to walk forward. So listen, let me close with this. I hope you see the way that God is in control in this story. He's the one in charge of the fish. He's the one who brought the storm. He's the one who's at work in Jonah. He's the one who's okay receiving the protest and the praise from Jonah. And if you're here this morning and you have not given praise due to God because you still feel a bit of protest in your spirit, would you not hold back any longer because he is strong enough to handle you? 
And he will take you from where you are to where he knows that you need to be. Because God, by his mercy, will lead you to maturity. The Lord was after the heart of Jonah. And he's after your heart as well. Let's pray. Let's respond to him this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, it's been so good for my soul to study it to see my own self in Jonah, to see my own selfishness in Jonah, and to see your mercy become more for me and more for us. So with this great mercy, this steadfast love of yours, would it transform? As we respond, would you do the things needed here this morning? Would there be new life potentially this morning, birth? Would there be um, greater vitality this morning as we acknowledge the tension of walking with you? Would there be even increased maturity this morning as we say, Lord, lead me. I don't need to know the end. I trust your hand. Take me along. So come, Holy Spirit, do the work only you can do as we respond in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.